What is the biggest challenge facing people on this issue? Cognitive dissonance. You're listening to The Brendan Murata Show. On this episode, I talked to John Atkinson, a father, activist, and genital autonomy advocate. I spoke with John because I wanted to understand the journey that someone goes on, from merely learning about the issue of circumcision to becoming an activist against it. If you've gone on this journey yourself, elements of John's story may feel familiar to you, but I think it highlights the challenges that activists face. We also talk about the challenges that men face and the challenges of being a parent and an activist at the same time. Now, here's John. How is it that you became interested in this issue? Well, I was 35 when my first son was born, and I never took the time to think about the issue. I didn't even know there was a movement. Honestly, I, I assumed that because it's happening so frequently, I had no idea what the numbers were across the world or anything like that. I just thought that most boys, if not all boys, were done this way, that this was just kind of like going along with vaccines, like pretty much everyone gets them done because it does something great medically or whatever. And my wife's OB didn't offer any information. So uh, luckily, someone gave us information and that that changed our minds. And uh, over time, I realized that this is a, it's a big problem. They're not offering people information. So they're kind of going off of social norms or whatever. And it's harmful. And the more I've studied it, the more I've realized how harmful it is uh, for myself, too. So I'm curious, what information is it that you first saw that made you rethink it? Uh, it was an article, I believe, in Mothering Magazine. At least that's the most memorable uh, information I saw. And the main thing that I focused on was the list of reasons that it's promoted on, on medical side of things. I didn't consider the religious side of it at all. I'm, I've been called a follower of the way, but I'm not Christian. I'm definitely not Muslim or Jewish or wouldn't even necessarily fit myself into any other category of other religions in the world. And I, I strongly believe in religious freedom. And I think that doing certain things with your children around religion, I don't want to necessarily indoctrinate them too much. You know, I want to give them the information, not to make their own minds up. I want them to be their own individual selves. So, uh, Definitely was not a reason for doing it. So the only reasons were potentially medical. And when I started seeing that all the medical reasons for it, medical benefits, as some people put it, is all preemptive, right? You're you're cutting off something to reduce chances that you know it might become infected or you know or the larger part, you know, the entire penis uh, somehow becomes infected because it's there. If we take that logic to any other body part, we can we can justify preemptively cutting off toes of, of children. And people are like, well, that's totally different. Well, uh, so what you're saying is that you value toes, but you don't see any value to the prepuce of, of the male. So one of the things I'm interested in is how it is people go not just from discovering an issue, but taking activism on it. And that's obviously something that you've done. And I suspect that most people listening to the two of us talk have either seen your work or they've seen my film and have some familiarity with this issue and why it's important. But I'm also curious what the journey is from learning about an issue to actually deciding to do something about it. So for you, you know, I think a lot of people either see my film or they learn something about this issue, but they don't really take any kind of action. It's sort of a something that affects maybe the choice that they make for their children, but not necessarily something that they feel the need to go into the world and do something about. So I'm curious for you, what was that change or moment that made you decide to start taking action on this? It took me about a dozen years to finally decide to speak. I'm, I'm a little bit ashamed by that, but at the same time, I realized that I had to go through my own process in my own head to, uh, to get there. And uh, it was almost 12 years into my son first being born where I, I met you and met and, and got to see the documentary at the social justice film festival. And that was, that was kind of a turning point for me. Uh, it was shortly after that uh, I realized in my own, it's like, okay, one of these days, the babies are being born today, 15, 16, 17, 18 years from today, they might complain and they might meet me and they're going to say, well, you knew it was bad. So what were you doing about it to try to protect me as a child? And I want to be able to have a decent answer to that. So 
So for you, it was the wanting the next generation to feel like you'd stood up for them or done something for them. Correct. And then once you knew that that was something you wanted to do, how did you decide what action you were going to take on that? It just went one thing after another, after another. I have this habit of noticing gaps, holes that need to be filled. <laughs> and uh, if I can figure out a way to fill it, then I will. Phrasing. What's that? <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't, my, my own juvenile mind couldn't help but add phrasing there. Just, you know, <laughs> holes that need to be filled. We're having exactly. a conversation about <laughs> a serious subject, but at the same time, it does relate to genitals. So it, it does. And yeah, we can make plenty of jokes about genitals. And I, I had a thought earlier today. It's like, you know, we need to chain, turn the tables a little bit because people make jokes about this topic all the time, turtlenecks and anteaters and stuff like that. It's like, let's turn the jokes on the people that make jokes. Well, those jokes aren't really that funny. And they're, they're certain, you know, part of humor is truth. And so in order for the joke to work, there has to be an element of truth to it. And it seems that most of those jokes really have an element of discomfort. Mm -hmm. There's like something that they're uncomfortable and they're trying to lighten the discomfort through humor, but it's not, there's not actually any insight in the joke or anything that's being said with it. It's just like, "Ah, I'm uncomfortable right now. Yeah. I imagine that's true. And I also imagine it differs for each person, depending on where they are on the topic and how much they understand about the topic. So you, you were looking for spaces where there was action that needed to be taken, but no one had done it yet. What were those things that you found and how did you find them? One of the things that led me to creating the, the Genesis Autonomy Society website is that there are several small organizations in this movement. Yeah, Blessing Men, Your Whole Baby, Intaction, Intact America. Um, Some of those aren't small, I would add. Some of those are, are fairly large, but you're right. Yeah. There are a lot of small organizations. Yeah, depending on what you, what you, what you call small versus large. But um, sure, it was very frustrating with me, to me. It's like, why can't we all just work together underneath one symbol, right? And if instead of having all, you know, we got the heart from your whole baby, we have the Bloodstain Pants logo from Bloodstain Men, and we have all these other logos that people have put together and all. Why can't we just get together and have one and make us look bigger? Because I want people to see like the International Child for General Autonomy and just know right away what that is about. Uh, for a lot of people, you might see like the colored ribbon and you know, okay, well, that's for you know, dealing with cancer or whatever. There's also a colored ribbon for genital autonomy, but people will look at that and they don't necessarily distinguish that from cancer. So I figured, well, these organizations won't work together because of lots of reasons, right? They have different ideas about how the best approach and who has the best information, who doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. And other issues sometimes get mixed in with this issue, unfortunately, it's, it is what it is. So I wanted to be able to figure out a way to make the movement to look large. So one of the things I did was I created a map. I put a map up on the website and I put pins all over the map, all across the globe. And those pins link you to organizations in various places. So I'm curious though, why when you were starting was your choice to focus on creating more connections between organizations rather than join a particular organization and then just follow or work with them? What made you gravitate towards that direction? Um, I didn't start off with that idea. I started off joining Your Old Baby and Bloodstained Men in any way I could. Any any opportunity that I had to speak out, to educate people, it started off with Facebook and then the various Facebook groups where the aim was to educate people. And it branched off from there. So you reached out to your whole baby and bloodstain men. You said, anything I can do to help, I want to help. And then what sort of stuff did they they have you do? What sort of things did they send your way? So your whole baby, they have stuff online, obviously, where you can be involved in their community group and you can talk to people in comments, whatever, uh, when people are asking for questions about why they should keep their child intact and stuff like that, and you can respond. They have a mantra that says you have to be gentle about it and all, but... Uh, they also have opportunities where you can participate in their tabling group, where you can organize at fairs, at uh, pride events, at baby expos. And I've done pretty much all of those at one point or another and set up a table and purchase a banner or two 
quite often you'll do fundraising along with your whole baby to help pay for those things, get all the cards and pamphlets and whatever to hand out. And I went even further than that. I purchased other things that related that I could share and hand out with people. So the the activities they had you doing were you were talking to people online, you were running booths at baby events, uh, you were handing out cards to people. And then how did you go from that to wanting to create a, a website of your own and do something like that? So I was on a chat and group meeting with some other advocates. And one of the things we realized right away is like, we, we need a, a way for people to register themselves as advocates and identify what their talents are, their strengths, et cetera, et cetera, the ways that they want to participate. So I'm an IT guy, corporate IT guy. So databases aren't that complex to me. Putting together a website isn't all, all that complex to me. So I just say, okay, I'll put this together. No one else is offering to do it. So I just jumped in and created it. I think it's great that there are so many people involved on this who have an entrepreneurial mindset where like, if there's something that needs to be done, we'll figure out how to do it. And it sounds like too, you were mentioning earlier wanting to create greater coordination between groups. What was the impulse for that? Because I've noticed this too. There's just sort of a desire for that that's ongoing in the movement. And it's been a need that's been there for a while, but I don't know that people have quite figured out how to solve it yet. But I now that I think about it, I'm also more curious about why that need is there, what the desire behind it is. Well, you know how certain animals operate in the wild, right? Like a peacock. They spread their wings wide and they end up looking really big. Right? Mm-hmm. Or certain other animals will just do whatever to spread out to make themselves look bigger than they actually are. So I That's... want I want people to see this as not a small fringe movement. Right. That's an interesting analogy, though, the desire to make it look big, because it seems to me that when I talk to people, it actually is very big. It's just that not everyone is aware of the label intactivist or identifies with that. And at the same time, not everyone is public about their advocacy. But that seems to be the case on most issues. Most people care about a large range of issues. If you talk to people, for example, about environmental issues, there's a lot of people who care about that. But there's very few people who identify as an environmentalist and are going to protests around that on a regular basis. So I don't know how much of that is a function of this particular movement and how much is a function of activism in general. Yeah. I prefer to use the term advocate, genital autonomy advocate. Activism might have a negative connotation to it. Sure. You know, some people think oh, when they think of activists, they think of people blocking the freeway. <laughs> Interesting, though, that there's a there's an idea of what an activist is and people who are doing social change work will call it something other than activism because of that brand. Yeah. Yeah. So advocacy seems to work uh, better for me. I'm totally aware that there's a stereotype around activists. And at the same time, I kind of don't care. Like it's <laughs> it's a word for a thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you say that uh, we're large, but here's the thing. I've looked at anti-FGM petitions and they get large numbers in the, you know, six figures pretty quickly in a short period of time. But when we try to put out petitions that include ending male genital cutting practices, they get very, very small numbers, unfortunately. Sure. Time. Yeah. There's multiple reasons I can think of for that. There's the social stigma of talking about the issue. There's just the distribution. I've seen people make a petition for a very good cause that gets no signatures just because they don't have a big audience and it's hard to distribute. So I totally see that. We do have you know some popular people in the movement like Alan Cumming and he works with Intact America a lot and Penn and Teller and the Tosh.0 and Adam owns everything. So, you know, this movement has been seen by large numbers of people. I guess they haven't decided to join it on at that level yet. You know, it seems to me that having this conversation, one of the interesting things I'm noticing is what's known as on-ramps in a movement. So on-ramps are basically how you get involved in something and discover it. And one of the things that I notice is in your story, there was an on-ramp for you around particular organizations you could contact. And then the work that they had for you was staffing a booth and talking to people online. And 
it almost sounds like in your story that there was only so far you could go down that track before you needed to do more or wanted to do more. And it strikes me that the thing to do there might be building more on-ramps. On-ramps are actually really an interesting topic because on-ramps are very different for different movements. So for example, one of the organizations that has historically done very well, which is a completely different issue, it's got nothing to do with this one, but it's the NRA. And that's because every time there's a gun safety class, it's an NRA instructor holding it, and that becomes an on-ramp. And so I almost wonder if there aren't on-ramps that people who care about this issue are missing around things like men's groups or birthing groups. Like I've heard a lot of people get into the movement through either something that they discover while learning about sexuality as an adult or something they discover when they're about to have kids. So it strikes me that there's sort of a a missed opportunity there of potential for bringing people in. Many advocates look for areas where there's intersectionality. For instance, the parenting groups on Facebook. Sure. A lot of advocates will jump in there and try to educate. Unfortunately, some of the advocates end up getting blocked or banned because the popular attitude in that parenting group is that they should circumcise their child. Right. So I also know you said you're, you're a parent. Are your kids grown up or are they still in the house? Teenagers, 14, 15. How, what, so as someone who's going to become a parent soon, I'm wondering uh, yeah. how you manage both activism and parenting. What is the process there? And, and if your family had a reaction to you getting into this activism? Well, actually, my wife got involved first. Um, it's kind of weird, but that's how it went because I'm a victim. She's not. I mean, she's an indirect victim, right? Because she's related, you know, and she's involved with me sexually. But I think that there are two things that were holding me back from getting involved. One was my own grief uh, around the issue uh, as I was learning and recognizing how I'm harmed by the what happened to me and what I'm still living with, without, however you want to look at it. And also, I was more busy with my work, my previous job. And uh, things changed a little bit, uh, both with family, as far as some health issues in my family, as well as my job, the job that I was at at the time, uh, I got laid off. So that kind of opened the doors for me to spend more time thinking about focusing on it and all. But all my my wife and both my boys are definitely supportive of this and actually involved. And uh, anyone that follows me knows that actually all of them have participated in uh, outdoor protests with me, even with my wearing bloodstained pants. What was your kid's reaction to you becoming involved in this? They, even Jackson, my oldest, he even said on a comment one time on, I think it was Facebook, whatever, um, where this person was trying to bash me for having my kids involved in this or whatever. And he's like, I am happy that my dad is is speaking out for children. So that warmed my heart. My youngest, he just he just loves to go protesting with me and hold the signs and, and even spin the signs <laughs> like a sign spinner. So um, and they both hear the reasons people use or excuses for doing this. And they're just horrified. That you know, people are justifying this, and to even think about having that done to themselves, they, it's just disgusting. It must be an interesting perspective growing up in a family where obviously the fact that they were kept intact is normalized, and it's normal to them to mm-hmm. then be exposed to the attitudes of the larger culture, which is so different and so toxic on this issue. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do worry about their the psychological impacts to them being exposed to this fact of the world. But they, you know, they're growing up. Uh, they they are teenagers and uh, you know, age appropriate uh, as much as I can be. And you know, I don't want them to be too sheltered. Obviously, I've been lately comparing this to uh, Greta Thunberg. Uh, I don't know if you've read her background that her dad wrote about, but. Before she became an outspoken activist, she got depressed after mm-hmm. learning about the problems in the world. And then I guess one day she got a sign out and held it on the side of the road. And that's where her voice you know, was coming out and she became alive again. So my boys, 
you know, I'm trying to encourage them to express their voice. Yeah, it starts off early too. It's like, okay, we're in the restaurant to order food. You guys speak up for yourselves. Tell the waiter or whoever what it is you want. Don't wait for me to tell them for you. They're teenagers though. So I imagine they're they're at an age where that's a relatively easy thing to do. Yeah. For my youngest, it was probably just three years ago where we were still trying to get him to speak up. Is he just shy or is there a particular reason? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, that's a good question. I Here's where it started. It started really when he was a toddler. Um, his older brother would always speak for him. Hmm. Even to this day, we tried to tell his older brother, it's like, no, let him speak for himself. <laughs> Sounds like they're looking out for each other. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of people looking out for each other, with the activism you're doing now, what is the hope, the desired outcome of all of that? You mentioned that it's in the future. People will say, you know, thanks for standing up for me. But is there more than that? Is there a particular goal or focus? Uh, obviously, the, I, I think the goal is that people stop telling children's genitalia ritually, you know, without a medical need. What I'm worried about is the process getting there. As you know, and you you identify this in your documentary, some men end up committing suicide over when they realize the losses. And uh, many others have committed suicide. I've interviewed two people that are either their buddy committed suicide or their husband committed suicide. And it it seems at least that it's very much tied to them learning about the harms of this. So it creates a conundrum for us advocates. We want it to stop, but we don't know how to make it stop without educating people about the harms. Well, it sounds like what you're describing is the cultural stress of the issue, meaning that there's obviously the initial pain the baby experiences, but there's also the pain that comes from learning about it and then having those thoughts about it as an adult. And then there's another whole trauma just around the reaction of the wider culture. Because even if you were to completely heal your own relationship to this issue, having other people invalidate that experience can be a stressor or a pain in and of itself. And it sounds like, too, that's what your your children experience when someone tries to tell them that there's something, you know, quote unquote, wrong with their intact body or that... This yeah. is not something they're allowed to talk about, especially when it also sounds like they're trying to find their voice and you as a parent are trying to encourage them to find their voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that cultural thing that you're talking about actually leads a lot of advocates into burnout. You probably don't see my wife involved as much in this advocacy work because burnout. She avoids a lot of videos and stuff that I watch because it, she just can't handle it anymore. How does burnout manifest for, for the two of you? What does that mean or look like? I'm burnt out myself, uh, sometimes with just dealing with people that are stuck in their cognitive dissonance and what I call willfully ignorant. Now, I used to spend more time going back and forth trying to debate them on it. But anymore, I just say, you know what? Go watch the American Trick Magician documentary. Go look at this website or whatever. And don't go back and forth with me on this. I don't have the time to sit here and, and uh, talk to you about it. It is stressful. It's infuriating to deal with people that don't want to do their own homework. It sounds like the burnout you're describing comes from trying to educate someone who does not want to learn and attempting to communicate with someone who doesn't want to listen. I don't know. I mean, I keep relating to this. Cognitive dissonance is something that people deal with. That's you know, For those that aren't aware of what that is, it means that you, know, you learn something new, but it a complex was something that you've been taught all your life or for a very long period of your life. And you, you had to deal with that inside of your own head. And for certain issues, there's just one layer of cognitive dissonance that someone has to process through. For this, there's several layers of cognitive dissonance that you have to deal with. You have to deal with the fact that you're, you know, if you're cut yourself, you have to deal with that layer. Uh, if you cut your children, you have to deal with that layer. If you're a medical professional that's been taught that it's a good thing, you have to deal with that layer. And then you have the religious aspects of it. If you fit all four of those, those people are harder to get through the process than others. And when you are doing your activism on this issue, are you mainly focused on talking to people who are unaware of this issue or prone to disagreement or, or spaces where people are prone to disagreement? Or are you focused on something else? Well, one of the things I, I do to address the burnout is 
I keep finding other ways to do things um, or the other things to do that still contributes to the movement. Just over the past couple of weeks, in fact, well, I came up with this idea and you might appreciate this being a filmmaker. It, it might be great if this gets on Netflix or more that, but I don't really see it going there right now. I'm putting together a docu-series on circumcision harms, right? Because one of the things that I think needs to be seen is the same thing with like FGM. People have heard on mainstream media how horrible FGM is because of all these effects, right? All these harms that happen. Well, there are several harms that happen to males too. It's just not as well known because most of us males were cut when we were babies. So we, just like I didn't know up till age 35, didn't, we don't know what we're missing and how things might not be going very well down there because of it. So I put together a, an outline of all the different ways that people in the world are harmed by these genital cutting rituals. And I started doing interviews with people to go over those and have hear their voice and hear their perspective on each one of those. And what format are you doing these in? Is this over Zoom? Is it yep. in person and camera? Yep, Zoom just like this. Yeah. Cool. And what's your plan for them? Are you distributing them somewhere? Do you have them online in some form now that people could go watch? They're, they're on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel and I have a couple playlists I know I've got multiple playlists, but two main playlists. One is just circumcision harm, which uh, involves me using this thing that's made out of yarn that kind of looks like a dildo that's intact. It's got its prep use and everything like that. And there's a bunch of short videos. They're like two, three, four minutes long. And I explain one harm at a time in each video. So it's kind of short. Not as short as TikTok, you know, one of the videos, but they're still short. So, you know, it's a quick watch. And then I have another playlist, and that's that's just the, for the raw interviews, and I'm sticking all the raw interviews up there. And when I feel like I've collected enough information, I'll start stitching those together in a video editor. So it strikes me that what you're collecting is what's usually referred to as lived experience, meaning people's stories, mm-hmm. their personal description of how it's impacted them. Over the course of these, what are the most common ways you've seen that men are impacted by this issue? Physically, uh, multiple men have talked about their scrotum being drawn up and having a hairy shaft. I think that's probably one of the number one ones. But right next to uh, lack of sensation or you know things getting more and more numb as they get older, and they believe that that's due to the lack of coverage on their glands. And what about emotionally? What is it? Do they talk about that particular impact or aspect of it yeah the first part is you know emotional just by learning about how things were supposed to be <laughs> how nature what nature gave them and all that and like learning the sorrel study and how you know, certain parts that were there were sensitive to like touch and all that but uh, i think what's more traumatic is trying to talk to others about it and not getting emotional empathetic support so isolation invalidation of feelings loneliness yeah and i didn't plan this when i started doing the interviews but i'm seeing that these interviews are providing a form of mental health help (laughs) because i more than empathize with these guys i sympathize with them and i'm also not just sympathizing with fellow men that are were cut as children but i'm also sympathizing with parents because I am a parent and I came this close, really close to letting our first son get cut. And so I just the thought of that just makes me sick really, really deep inside. And I think that I can relate with uh, regret parents. So you've had parents on the channel too, or is it just that you've heard their stories through this? Yeah, I, I started out doing interviews. I was focusing on victims that were directly cut and intact men but then i realized you know there's a bigger audience here that has a lot to say and i did a post on facebook saying hey you know i i'm interested in interviewing anyone that's a a burnt out intactivist and oh my gosh i got so much response i was really i didn't expect to see that many there are a lot um, of people who are feeling burnt out that's really interesting to me and it it makes me think that What I'm noticing in this too is that there's a lot of attempts to get 
people who are unaware of this issue to become aware of it. And there might need to be more support for the men who are aware of it in some form or another. I'm thinking a lot too about uh, one of the things I've been reading about is how basically the gay community historically set up a lot of services to help people in their community. Because when there was a, for example, a domestic dispute, they couldn't call the police because at the time their lifestyle was considered illegal. And so they had to basically set up their own social services to intervene in those things. And it strikes me that for men, there are a lot of things that, although not illegal, there's just no social understanding around. No one quite understands how to support them and that that we might need to set up our own support network, so to speak. Yeah. There is norm.org for restoring men. And you don't have to choose to restore to be involved with that group. I'm personally not really actively trying to do something about restoring myself. I just don't feel like I have the necessary tissue to work with and I don't have the emotional strength. (laughs) There is Um, an emotional component to restoration and it's not something I've seen a lot of people talk about that just, if you're doing this, you're having to interact with the wound in a very particular way on a daily basis. Every time you want to make progress. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of men have talked about this, uh, this particularly in private in these in these groups where, you know, anonymity is it's similar to like going to an AA meeting or whatever, you know. <laughs> I've been to a norm meeting and that that is similar to the, to the vibe that I got. There's a lot of, when I went, I was very surprised. It was a lot of, I guess you'd say like middle-class professionals, like people in their forties who wear khaki pants. And and then there's also a couple young guys who, who were very clearly like gamers or like, it was just sort of, the, the kind of people who you wouldn't necessarily think of as being politically active in any particular way, very normal. Um, but yeah, I did notice a similar energy there. And uh, in LA, they've been having online meetings since the pandemic started. That's been sure too. So across these stories, what are the biggest needs that these men have that we could support them in, in some way? Is it just hearing the story or is there more that we could do? I'm not sure. I'm not a psychologist. But <laughs> well, have they are so so have they articulated any things? Have they said like this is something I really need and uh I'm not getting? A lot of us I think just we need to be heard and sympathize with. It is like we need a human mirror. Yeah. You know, I do healing work with some people and change work and my my wife does that basically for her whole job. Yeah, and one of the things that I've learned in that process is that it's very important to initially acknowledge the feelings a person has and just allow them to be seen. And you basically can't do any healing work without that first step. If someone comes in and says, you know, I'm feeling really sad about this. If you just go like, no, you're not <laughs> like, that's the end. There's, there's no, there's no further place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that seems to be the way that the wider culture treats this issue. And that also even a lot of people who put themselves in positions of healing treat the issue. I mean, that's obviously how the medical community treats it. But it's, it's also what I've seen a lot of therapists and psychologists do who are just plugged into the the medical way of thinking. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've, I've seen too many stories where men have gone to their counselors, whatever, and either were afraid to bring it up or when they did bring it up, um, the therapist has their own issues around this to deal with. And they, they just, they can't keep stay professional or whatever about it. I've learned though, as uh, someone who does healing work, and I've learned from every other healer, I know that very often people who do healing work will attract clients that have issues similar to them. Mm-hmm. It's almost, it's almost like how if you know someone who, was in a dysfunctional relationship growing up. They'll just keep recreating that dysfunctional relationship. And it like, doesn't matter who they meet. That's, that's who they seem to attract. Uh, healers often do the same thing. They keep getting clients that have the, the thing that they need to heal. And I've had this happen to me. Every healer I know has had it happen. So I don't know. I kind of feel like if that happens to a healer, then it's a sign that they need to work on that thing. And the good healers I know will literally tell a client, Hey, I actually have my own issues around that. I'm not the right healer for you yet. Come back to me in a month when I've solved this problem for myself. 
Yeah, I would I would actually love to get in front of healers like that that have their own issues about it and have a two-way conversation instead of it just being, well, you're here to heal me. Maybe I can help you heal yourself too. Well, it's also an example of there's a frame in therapy and psychology that very often ignores larger social problems where they see the person's feelings as the thing to solve, not the situation. Whereas we would all understand if someone was in a dysfunctional relationship where someone didn't acknowledge their feelings that we'd have to talk about that first and maybe get them out of the relationship. And if that relationship is with society, then we might have to make some other changes in the world, but you know, yeah. So now's a good time to jump into this. So I have uh, five questions I'm asking everyone who who is coming to talk about the issue of circumcision and genital cutting. But the first is why is this issue important or what is the most important thing about this issue? It hurts. It harms. Nothing else to add to that. That, I think that's a huge, just those words right there are just, you could go on and on with just that alone. So the second question I have is, what is the biggest challenge facing people on this issue? Cognitive dissonance. Can you tell me a little more about that? No, like I was saying earlier, it's you've got multiple layers of cognitive dissonance. So people have to consider the possibility that they're actually harmed physically by the fact that they were cut. They have to accept the possibility that they made a bad choice uh, as a parent. They have to accept that the medical side of things may be incomplete. And that shouldn't be a big surprise to people because medicine has had lots of flaws in history. So, uh, And then the religious side, that might be a big hurdle to deal with. I don't really have an answer for that one, but uh, I'm a big fan of religious freedom. So I just keep saying, leave it up to the individual to decide for themselves. And the third question I have is, how is it that we need to grow and change to meet this challenge? Simply put, we need a growth mindset. You can look that up. There means quite a few things, but it kind of also, you know, a lot of people think of having an open mind, right? Being willing to take in information, even if it doesn't sound right at least at first and stay curious so a growth mindset in this context means willingness to grow in your awareness and understanding and what's the biggest opportunity or potential opportunity that we have around this issue to support each other with love Hmm. so there's an opportunity here because of the pain to potentially further our connection to one another. Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges I see with advocates all the time is putting themselves into the other person's shoes and knowing your audience, right? You have to meet them where they are at this moment in time. Reacting to someone with ad hominem or whatever might just cut off the conversation and and cut off their opportunity to give person more and more information that might get them through their own cognitive dissonance. I love that idea that the pain that people experience around this issue is actually a potential source of connection and growth. That totally reframes everything that people normally think about this issue and turns all of the negatives about it into a positive and one that I definitely share and see. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I you know, I think you can make lots of parallels with that. For instance, if, if you go off to war with other comrades, um, that time spent together fighting and struggling and whatever else, uh, you're doing it side by side with them, even though you might not have met them or whatever beforehand. And you come out the end feeling very close to those individuals. I definitely felt that with everyone I spoke to over the course of the documentary that I made and everyone I've connected with since then, that there is a connection that's possible because this issue is so large and it affects people so deeply that we're actually able to go very deep, very quickly in terms of our connection. So the last question I had here was, what action should people take on this issue? What should they do? Whatever you can think of, <laughs> whatever you are driven to do, whether that's put money toward it, reach out to fellow advocates, ask them what they're doing, ideas, 
Sign up at Genital Autonomy Society. <laughs> I was about to ask. The, the, the thing I have written for this question is, what should people do? And then also, if you want to give a shameless plug for you or your organization. So thank you. Yeah. I am 100% for the shameless plug. <laughs> Please. Well, also buy my books and my movie. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. American Circumcision. It's, you know, Brendan, I don't know if I've told you this before, but I was elated to see that documentary because before I came up to that, I had seen such long threads for the debate. And you just see the debate, same thing over and over and over. Yeah. Same reason, same excuses on both sides. And it just gets tiring to see it over and over and over again. And it just looks like when I even think about trying to educate people about it, it's like that just seems like a huge mountain to deal with, sit there and you know, spend hours trying to educate one person. Now I could say, hey, the debate is fully covered in this one documentary. And you hear from both sides of the debate. <laughs> very strong sides of the debate. And what you've done is extremely impressive. The fact that you got in front of guys like Edgar Schoen and Andrew Friedman and biggest of all, Brian Morris. <laughs> well, thank you. I feel like, you know, you were talking about the pain being an opportunity for connection, but I actually also feel like the conflict is an opportunity for connection that I felt like I learned something talking to them and that, weird as it may sound to some people, I enjoyed the connection that came from it. And I feel like, too, that there is an opportunity for connection, even around the conflict on this issue, if people are willing to allow it to, to be that way. In other words, there's a lot of times where people, you try to connect to someone on, around this issue and they shut it down. Like, because there might be conflict, because there might be pain, the connection doesn't feel safe. So like, oh, we can't have that conversation. Yeah. Whereas if you actually had the conversation, you'd learn so much. And there's so many things you'd learn about that person, about their values. You would learn about what's important to them about raising children, what they want for the future of the next generation, how they feel about their own sexuality. Like, there's all these things you can learn. Yeah. And what I notice in, and for example... <clears throat> You mentioned parenting groups that sometimes are like, you know, they have a no bashing rule or they want to avoid conflict on the issue. It's like, no, they don't want that because most people don't know how to have conflict in a constructive way where it actually deepens the connection. But conflict's always the opposite. It's, you know, if you've ever gotten a really big fight with a friend of yours, as long as you could resolve the conflict, you're actually stronger friends at the end. Absolutely. Yeah. You've just got married recently, but uh, I'm, Sure, you've had some fights with her, right? Now, of course, right? <laughs> yeah. We have, we have we have healthy conflict in our relationship, like yeah. any. Sometimes yeah. it's unhealthy, and that's when we have to go look at how we were raised and what relationship patterns we were we were brought into as children. But you know, it's good. Yeah, it is. It often you end up coming out stronger and better for it. It is. It's funny. That was actually something I told Christina really early in the relationship. She initially, she was like, well, what do you want? And I was like, I want you to have the fight with me. I want, <laughs> I want you to actually give me what you're really feeling so that I can take that as a part of myself and I can help you meet that need. Cause I don't want to just bulldoze the need. I want to meet it. Even if I have a different perspective where I'm in conflict. Absolutely. Totally there with you. So, sometimes as the husband, I'll just tell her, this is what we need to do because I know, but it's only in those rare situations where where our safety depends on it. Of course, sometimes in those situations, I'm just in a trigger and our safety doesn't depend on it. And I'm being yeah. hypervigilant. And I have to solve my own triggers. But it happens. Yeah. As a parent, I, I have to do the same thing with my children. As much as I want to get them to choose with me, choose the same thing, choose the right thing, sometimes you just don't have time for that. And it's like you just have to kind of take control and say, okay, we're doing this. This is how we have to do it. Uh, right, right now. And maybe we'll talk about more later and talk it through. You know, I've heard from other parents that that gets easier when you allow your children choice in the small things. Mm -hmm. So if you give them 999 choices a day, then on the thousandth, you can be like, look, I need to make this one. They'll be much more okay with it, knowing that, that you give them choice on all most of the, you know, all the other areas of their life. Makes sense to me. Yeah. So speaking of which, do you have any parenting advice for someone who will, and it'll probably be when this comes out, it'll be five months. I will be a parent. It's probably cliche, but spend as much time as you possibly can 
um, because it goes by way too fast. <laughs> it already yeah. feels like it's going by fast. It's, I'm sure. She yeah. was, just uh, told it, me she was pregnant a month ago. <laughs> enjoy those kicks on the belly. You know. <laughs> yeah, enjoy every bit. One of the challenges is when you have your second and third child is you might get a little bit burnt out on taking pictures. You might, you know, the first one, you'll take lots of pictures of, and the second one, you will take fewer pictures of. <laughs> so it, it's really children a Middle get, get a raw deal sometimes. So yeah. <laughs> I'm familiar with the dynamics of oldest, middle, and, and youngest. I've yep. That's all I can think of right now with, uh, with parenting. Knowing you, Brendan, as much as I've come to know you over the past few years, I think you're going to be an awesome dad. Oh, well, thank you. I hope so. Is there anything else that you want to tell people about this issue? Anything that I didn't ask you that you really want to talk about or wanted to talk about? No, I think we really covered things pretty, pretty well across the board. Cool. You know what it strikes me? The thing I'm taking away from this conversation is that, so when I made my film, there's a need to share information on a really broad scale. And I think that that need is still there. And there's absolutely still room for more things like that, both movies and books and YouTube and all those different things. But it also sounds like that there is a need for when people become aware of this issue, for ways for them to take care of each other. And this is something that every other movement has done at some point. So in different civil rights movements, in the gay community, in the transgender community, mm -hmm. among people who are interested in racial justice of every background there, actually. Eventually, there's a point where people within the, those communities say, we have needs that the wider culture doesn't meet and doesn't know how to meet. And we actually need to figure out how to meet them amongst each other so we can teach the larger world what it is we want. And now, you know, there's all sorts of things that people do that were first discovered in those communities that it's now considered normal to do because people understand, well, that's what it means to be nice to someone is that that's what they need. And this is how the, you know, their needs, how we can meet those needs or, or what feels good to them. And it strikes me that we might need to start developing some of those things internally so that we can show people externally. Yep, I'm there with you. Well, where can people find you if after this? Obviously, genitalautonomysociety.org. Did I get that right? Yep, yep, that's correct. And, and where else should people go? Well, uh, my name, I use my real name with this. I, I'm not hiding in behind anonymity. I'm on Twitter as A-D-K-I-S-O-J-K, which is the first characters of my last name. And then J is my first name and K is my middle initial, both on Twitter and on TikTok. Uh, you can find my name on YouTube and on Facebook, and uh, my picture is, you know, very easy to identify. If you're watching this uh, in video format, you should be able to recognize my my face quite easily. Somewhere in there, you should be able to find me. Cool. <laughs> Reach out to me. I feel like the anonymity thing. Maybe I'm just biased from coming from a world of artists, but I feel like this issue is far less controversial than people make it out to be. Well, you know, Marilyn Milos got fired, right? But I mean, sure. that was four decades ago, right? She was working um, in the hospital system, though, and like one of the first people ever to talk about it. And yeah, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that was a different, different world. Yeah. Actually, though, I was just talking to someone a couple of years ago. He got in trouble for calling a hospital and complaining about what was done to him multiple times. And they made claims and he ended up in court over it and all that. What they uh, said, what was the, what was the claim that they made? Like what was, what was it? That he, did he, that they, he was making certain threats. I see. Threats. So they, um, they felt like his behavior was threatening. Yes. I understand the anger for sure. But at the same time, we have to kind of follow the rules. The was he actually making threats though? Or was he just upset? He, he claims that he was just upset and he never, he didn't make certain claims that they claimed that was made. You know, it's also, we were talking about conflict earlier. There's a book that I read by Sarah Schulman called Conflict is Not Abuse. And in it, she talks about how, as the title says, conflict is not abuse. Meaning that if you have conflict with someone that's different than abuse, and abuse actually requires a power differential or 
uh, physical harm of some kind. And that very often when two people are in conflict, one of them will frame it as abuse, as a power play, because then they can get an authority involved. Yeah. So if they frame what he's doing as abuse, then like they can invite the state in and they can, they can bring charges and things like that. Yeah. Whereas it sounds to me, assuming, assuming his testimony is correct and he's, he's not actually making threats, mm -hmm. but if he's not, and he's just angry, it sounds like conflict. Yeah. The challenge is identifying where the line is between freedom of speech and harassment or something else. But saying men or other other advocates or activists could be out standing in front of a hospital or whatever. At what point does it become harassment of the hospital or the people? You can, in the hospital? You can protest a hospital. People protest police stations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I so personally have called some hospitals and clinics and I call them and I try to, you know, very be very official and, and forward and, and say, well, I'd like to file a formal complaint. And then they often transfer me to someone that, you know, is a complaint department or whatever. Right. And, you know, a complaint department is supposed to be there, you know, customer service department, whatever. They're supposed to listen to you. Yeah. In IT, I'm a customer service guy myself. So they just sit there and pretty much hear you out. Hmm. Right. So um, has anything ever come of that? Have you ever had? Any well, response? I actually called one urologist's office one time and Surprisingly, the urologist actually called me back one evening after his work and all that. And he had a heck of a long conversation with me. I, it was like an hour. And he came up with the usual excuses that, you know, so many of us advocates have heard time and time and time again. And I was able to just take care of each one. And, you know, near the end of it, he's like, you know, actually, you make some very good points. <laughs> so uh, it was good. Uh, you know, uh, something came out of trying. And I often compare it to a salesman's job. You know, he, might make 10 calls or whatever and only get one lead. I think that's a really good story though, because it shows that the communication is possible if both parties are willing to do it. So in that case, exactly. he was actually willing to talk with you and not just customer service talk to you, but like actually has a, have a conversation as a human being. Yeah. And it strikes me that many of the doctors I've heard who frame protest as harassment are not willing to have a conversation. And if someone approached them cordially or gently, that that actually wouldn't get through at all. And the reason that they're attracting really angry protest is because people who feel like there is no other way that they can communicate get angry. This is what people have do since they're little kids. If you ignore a baby long enough and don't take its needs seriously, it'll cry and get mad yeah. and get upset with you and rightfully so i don't know that i have anything else to add to you is there anything you want to add no this has been great i really appreciate this i'm i'm quite honored that you reached out to me for this thank you thank you for listening to the brendan Murata show if you liked this episode please share it with someone else who would also like it and then go on whatever platform you listen to the show on and leave a positive review if you want to support the show directly, go to brendanmurata.com slash show and subscribe there. Paid subscribers get special unreleased bonus material and live events that are only available to them. Once again, that is brendanmurata.com slash show. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you all later.